Good morning. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 is where we're going to start today, starting in verse 19 through 25. Hebrews is a wonderful book. Uh, it can be a daunting book, but I think there's a lot we can learn from just these few verses. Um, so let's uh, open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. I'll start in verse 19 and read through verse 25. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean with an evil clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another as all the more you see the day drawing near. And boy, do we see the day drawing near. That is a fact. Amen. uh, In my Sunday school class uh, with young adults, we've been going through a survey of Hebrews, which means we cover a chapter every week which is a challenge because you definitely want to dive into Hebrews. And this morning we covered Hebrews chapter 10. So my class is going to kind of get a review, overview, rehash, again, of a few verses that we already talked about, but that's okay. Maybe I'll come up with a few things here the Lord will give me that is different. But uh, it's hard to do a survey of Hebrews because it is such a book. And like I said before, it can be a daunting book. It can actually be a book that a lot of people avoid. As a matter of fact... Let's see, I got back into church serving the Lord in 1983, and since 1983, I don't think I've ever taught Hebrews in any of my Sunday school classes. Now, Barb and I started working with kids. We did first through sixth grade for a long time. Uh, We ran a bus route, as many of you know. We worked with teenagers for many, many years. I actually enjoy teenagers. I don't know why people don't want to work with teenagers. Because I find them to be the most exciting group you can work with. I mean, because drama is the word, and it's just actually a good time. They're in that transition of life from being a young person to becoming a young adult to becoming an adult, and that can be the best time to give guidance and wisdom and instruction. And then we've taught young adults, so we've done that for several years. I've taught adults. Here at Calvary, I taught the adult class before Harvey came in. And graciously took that over. Um, so I, all those years, I've never, ever taught the book of Hebrews. So that tells you something, right? And sometimes that was out of a bit of fear because it is such a doctrinal book. And when I say doctrine, the word simply means teaching. It's teaching. It teaches some of the depths of Christ. But I'll give you a key to the book of Hebrews and understanding the doctrine or the teaching that's in that book. And the key to remember is, Jesus is supreme. The whole book is written to Hebrew believers who are scattered out throughout the empire at that time. And these Hebrew believers are under persecution because they came out of Judaism into uh, Messiah, accepting Jesus, or Yeshua would be his Hebrew name, as Messiah. 
the Jewish nation still looking for Messiah. They didn't accept him as Messiah, but then people, Jews did get saved and did come out of And now all of a sudden they're under persecution, not only from the world, but from their own people. And some of them want to go back. They are tired of this. And they want to go back to the old system, back to the old sacrificial system, back to everything that they've been taught through Moses. They want to go back to that. And the whole book of Hebrews says, no, you can't go back. There's no point in going back. Because Christ, in His priesthood and in His person, are superior. He fulfills. He does away with a new covenant. And when He says... All through the book of Hebrews, all the way through chapter 10, verse uh, 20, or verse 18, really, he's telling them Jesus is superior to everything in the old sacrificial system. He's a superior sacrifice. He's a superior priest forever after the order of Mechizeldeck. He goes through the whole, the whole saying you can't go back. There's no point in going back. But then there's a lot of things in Hebrews because of that, that can be a little daunting or a little hard to understand. And in this piece, this 19 through 25, we've got our position in Christ, the theological process or thought, and then we have the practical application of that position in the last few verses. And actually, through the rest of the book, from verse 19 through the verse, chapter 13, the writer goes from showing the superiority of Christ to the application of that belief. Because we get here the beginning of the application in chapter 11. We get what's called the hall of faith. We see over and over again in chapter 11 uh, when he says, By faith Abraham, by faith, by faith Moses, by faith Rahab, by faith, by faith. If you just go down through chapter 11 and see how many times he uses the word by faith. And he gives us he gives us examples, and then chapters twelve and thirteen gives us application. And this morning, what I'd like to do is take a little bit of this theology or our position in Christ, as he talks about in the first verses, nineteen through twenty-one, and talk about a little practical application, which he does in verses twenty-two to twenty-five. You know, in the American church today, in evangelical churches today, the word doctrine can be dangerous. Do you know there's churches out there that actually won't put their doctrine on a website because they're afraid it'll cause division? I guarantee you it will cause division. All doctrine is our teaching. And what you're taught, what you come to understand and believe about God, it will affect your life and how you act. Nowhere, everywhere in Scripture, we always see that what they believe impacts how they act. If you believe this, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Well, if you go through the, the Gospels, there's somewhere around 48 to 50 commands of Jesus, depending on how you interpret some of that. Uh, I've got a lesson on the 49 commands of Jesus as you go through the Gospels. So there's a lot. He says, if you believe this, if this is the teaching that Jesus is saying, I've taught you this, now you need to act this way. And we see this here in Hebrews after he talks about the superiority of Christ. You know, we ask a lot of good questions today in our churches. How can I improve my marriage? How can I better raise my kids? How can I, how can I be a better witness on my job? Mm, you know, don't give me any doctrine. Just give me how it works. You can't separate the two. When I give you the teaching, it shows you how to do the work. The question becomes, can you do the work? Do you do the work? 
Those are great questions, and we should ask them of our churches. But when we te- get up here and in our Sunday school classes or in our uh, when we come to preach and teach, we give you the instruction and the teaching that's in, in Scripture. We also give you the application. And He does it over and over again in Scripture, everywhere we see. And in 19 through 21, He talks about our position. He says, therefore, well, therefore what? Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Well, what's therefore, therefore, as we always say? It's this. In the previous part of the chapter, he says Jesus' sacrifice of himself on the cross was enough. The old sacrificial system had to be done over and over and over again. You had to keep killing animals and you had to keep doing it over and over again. But with Christ, one sacrifice of himself was enough. And he says, but in verse in chapter ten, verse three. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. You had you you could do the outside sacrifice and walk away and still feel as bad about it as you did before, because it was impossible. He says in verse four for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And but in verse ten, he says, by this we have been sanctified through the offering of his body of the Jesus Christ once and for all. And once he offered himself, he sat down at the right hand of God. We see that in the other verses. Because his sacrifice was enough, and because his sacrifice completed that work, we don't need any more sacrifices for sin. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. In verse 18, he says, Now, where there is forgiveness of these sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. That's enough. It's done. Christ's death on the cross, the shedding of His blood, was enough to pay the price. And to a Jew, that's an interesting concept because they used to go in every year to the temple or as often to offer sacrifices, lay their hands on the head of an animal, they slit its throat, drain its blood, cut it up, burn part of it, offer part of it. There was just all this ritual and things involved in it over and over and over and over again. But Jesus, in these specific, in this situation, his sacrifice was enough. Therefore, because that's true, and because he only had to offer himself once, and because he sat down at the right hand of the Father, he says this, Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. He gives us two things here. He says, one, we have a new way, and two, we have a new priest. Our way is not through dead animals, it's through a living Savior. We have confidence that we can come to the holy place through a new way, a living way. Now remember... As I don't know, most of you probably know, the way the tabernacle or the temple was set up. You know, you had the outer court with a laver and, and the altar. Then you had the holy place and the holy of holies. And in the holy place, we had the table of showbread, the altar of incense and the menorah that they would tend to every day. Then you had the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. Now, at the time this was written, they didn't have the Ark. The holy of holies was empty. But there was a heavy veil, a heavy cloth, thick cloth between the holy place and the holy of holies. And only one person could go in there every year. And that was the high priest. He'd wear little bells on the bottom of his skirt so that they knew he was alive, dingling around. 
And they would tie a rope around his ankles, some historians say, so that if he were to die, be struck dead because he did something wrong, if you tried to go in and rescue him, you would be struck dead. So they would use the rope to pull him out of the holy place. That's how they viewed God. If I try to come into the presence of God, he'll strike me dead because of my sin. Only the high priest can go in there. Most people never got past the gate getting into the inner, into the inner court. And only Levites server, the Levites and the priests did all the service and the sacrifices and all that. Then the, they would rotate through doing the holy place, you know, keeping the menorah trimmed and the showbread and the altar incense burning. And then the high priest went in once a year. Well, we know that when Christ died on the cross, as it says in the Gospels, that big thick veil between the holy place and the holy of holies was rent from the top to the bottom and torn in half. This is the picture he's given us here. Is by a new and living way which he inaugurated through the veil that is his flesh. We're giving you an analogy here. Because that veil stood between us and God, when Christ died and offered himself on the cross, that was done away with. That was torn apart. And since we have a great new high priest over the house of God, so we have a new way, a living way. Think about that to a Jewish mindset. You mean I can go into the Holy of Holies now? You mean I can actually go into the presence of God? In other places, Scripture says, come boldly to the throne of grace. Our theology and our teaching is that Christ's shed blood on the cross was enough to pay my sin debt. Therefore, because of that only having to be done once, I don't have to crucify him over and over again. It only has to happen once. And because of that, I now have access to God directly through him. What does he say? I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Through him, through his death, burial and resurrection, but through his death specifically now, it's open. I can see into the Holy of Holies. I can see God. I can now come to God through a living way. Not a dead animal. And then he says, of course, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, we have a great high priest. I asked this question in my Sunday school class. So what is the house of God? Is this the house of God? Our bodies are what? Temples of the Holy Spirit. So when we, we're together, we are the body of Christ. We're the house of God. That's us. As a matter of fact, I think he says it back here, if I don't remember, if I do remember. Um, chapter 3, verse 6, But Christ fulfilled as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence in the boast of our hope firm unto the end. So now we not only have a direct line to God, we have a great high priest over our house, over us. Somebody I can go directly to and say, i got a problem. And he will intercede to me on my behalf. But you've got to understand, that's, doctrinal, that's, that's a great piece of doctrine right there. Because in some religions, you still got to do things to earn your way to God. You either have to dress a certain way, 
go a certain place, do a certain thing, or you've got to say so many things, or do this thing, or confess to some man, or do something like that. You've got to do all those things to make yourself sinless or right enough to get to God. But our doctrine teaches, no, you can't do enough. And that's why Christ had to die for us. And His death was sufficient. It met the need. It paid, he paid the price. Now I have this direct access through Him to God. And I have Him as a representative to go to, me, to, go to God for me if I need. And that's the doctrinal part of it. That's our position in God as a believer, as a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. Think about that for a minute. Like I said uh, a couple of weeks ago when I spoke about my uh, time in the desert and looking at that blanket of stars from horizon to horizon, I mean, there's not a blank space up there without a point of light. I mean, it, it is just packed. And my God created that. Every bit of that. And I think to myself, He's allowed me to come directly to Him through Christ, through Messiah, through Jesus. What a privilege. Wow! The God of the universe tells me now that I can talk directly to Him. Because He made the way. Because there was nothing I could do. But then there's the practical application of that. In the next verses, there's three let us. And not lettuce like you put in your salad. It's let us. All right? Well, you know, I was getting a little serious there, so I thought I'd better break it up a little bit. Anyway, he says, let us in verse 22, let us in verse 23, and let us in verse 24. So what I want to take for the next few minutes is for us to take the doctrine that we learned, the fact that we have this privilege to come directly to God through Jesus Christ, our position before God. How do we practically apply that? And that's what he's getting ready to say here. He's going to give us three things. First, he's going to say in verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart. In verse 23, let us hold fast. In verse 24, let us consider. Well, what are these things? And it's interesting to think about this, that when he's talking about our position, the first practical application of doctrine, of teaching, that he says here is, let us draw near with a sincere or true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean with an evil, of an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, you've got to remember, he's talking to Jews now. The thing about Hebrews is you always have to remember context, right? Context, context, context. Without context, you get a pretext for what? Heresy. All right? So you have to keep context. He's talking to Jews. And a Jew would immediately understand what sprinkle and what wash means. But he said, what do we do? Because of our position, we need to draw near with a sincere heart, a true heart, a heart that is not divided, a heart that doesn't have divided loyalties, without hypocrisy. Because of Christ's death, we can come to God with a true heart, a sincere heart, full of assurance of faith, Faith is the key. Having our hearts, what, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
sprinkle. When you think about the Old Testament system, the sacrificial system, whenever they wanted to sanctify something or sit it aside, they would sprinkle it with blood. When Moses inaugurated the tabernacle, he took blood and he sprinkled it on the tabernacle. If you study the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, they would take some of the blood and stick it in hyssop and they would sprinkle it as a sign of you being cleansed. That's what that represented. And then, from an evil conscience. In other words, when he talks about an evil conscience, he's talking about the fact that you're now in the external. The Old Testament system was all external. So I could do these things and go through the stuff and all the things I need to do and get it done. Okay, I'm great. And then when I walk away, nothing's really changed inside most of the time. Although people have always been saved by faith. And they had faith that this sacrificial system that God had given them was enough until Messiah would come. But the point being is... It didn't do anything for the inside. In the previous parts of chapter 10, it says that the sacrifice of Jesus changes the inside. That's what's important, is to change us on the inside. So that shed blood is sprinkled on our hearts, on the person that I am, on me, so that I can, I can come to God through His shed blood. What's the old saying I used to hear preachers say all the time? God looks at us through blood-colored glasses. Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's sprinkled on my heart. And then the washing part of it here, our bodies washed with pure water. Some theologians like to say that alludes to baptism. Eh, maybe. But more or less to a Jew, it talks about the ceremonial washing that they would have to do. The priest would have to wash. That's why you had this outside the tabernacle or the temple. You had this huge laver with water because they would wash the sacrifices in it. They would wash themselves before they would go and do things. How many times in the Old Testament... When God would say to Moses, have the people clean themselves and wash themselves because I'm going to do whatever. And that's what he's talking about, I believe, there. Is that we can come practically, we can come to God with a sincere, clean heart and give our petitions. I think practically in an application, we should say to ourselves, am I that way? Have I confessed my sins? Have I, am I trying the best I can to come to Him with a pure and clean heart, knowing that His sacrifice was enough to cover me, to take care of me? Do I frequently draw near? There's other places in Scripture where it talks about the, being washed by the Word. And I think about that. How much Scripture do I read? And when I read it, does it cleanse? Does it cleanse? Oh, man, it just makes me, oh, it just gets me that much closer. You know, there's been a lot of times that I would read Scripture and I'd be like, okay, I'm done with my reading. And my wife would be, what did you read this morning? Mm. Well, I think I'm in James. Oh, let's see, wait a minute. I'm in Matthew or is it James? Hmm. Now, how many times do you go to Scripture looking for something? Whatever that might be. Or just keeping an open mind to receive whatever's given. It's like I always use the example of the book of Job. If you've ever read the book of Job, it can be a little depressing sometimes. Here's a guy who's really serving God and he gets whacked. And I would read that and I'd be like, okay, I understand. Yeah, okay. 
And one day I was doing my devotions and I went through Job and it was like it lipped up off the page and in bright neon lights, hey Dwight. And I'm like, wow, there's truth there. Wow. Do we do that? And then 23, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. The second application of our position of who we are in Christ is not only that we can draw near to God with a clean heart, but also we need we can hold fast our confession of hope without wavering for he who had promised is faithful. Hold fast. Hold fast. That word means to keep maybe in your memory or to keep secure, or to hold firm possession of, to retain it, to seize on it. And what's the hope? The hope of the future. We get too busy about this world and what's going on in this world. And I'm not saying that we should neglect what's going on in the world. I'm simply saying that it becomes everything. You know, I get up in the morning, have my breakfast, read the news, get depressed, go to work. Okay, <laughs> wait a minute. Maybe I need to get up in the morning, do my devotions, read the Word, pray, feel better so that when I read the news, I can go, well, God's working in the world. And then go to work and be depressed. No, that's not right. Be a witness. <laughs> but the point is, if you're going to go through this life, the privilege and position we have to come before Christ, you've got to hold on to it. It doesn't mean you can lose it. You just have to hold on to it. Too many times we want to say, well, I don't think God can do that. Excuse me? God may choose not to do something, but nothing's ever out of His power. But the thing to remember, that whatever happens in our lives and whatever goes on, we cannot release that hope. And what is that hope? What is the hope that we have for? It is being with the Lord. Because he who promised is faithful. Because of our position in Christ. Because we have this living way. Because we have this great high priest. One day I can stand with the hosts in heaven and praise his name. One day I can hopefully hear him say, well done, that good and faithful servant. you got to hold on to it. you got to hold on to that hope. Don't lose it. I'll tell you myself, there's been times with my wife and her health and things like that. That hope starts to slip away. Depression starts to come in a little bit. But God's always been faithful to say, don't give up. Don't give up. This is not the end. This world is not the end. This is not it. There's better. There's more. Hold on to that hope. What does Scripture say? We need to be ready to answer to people for the hope that is within us. What's that hope? Why are you not worried about all this other stuff? Why, why, why are you not worried about... I mean, I know you're concerned, but why is it that you still seem to have some sort of joy? It's because I have a hope. This world's not it. <laughs> Man, if this is all there is, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's what Scripture says. And it's not. We have to hold on to that. When we go through those times, when we do those, whatever happens, good or bad, hold on to that hope. The hope of the future. And then he says, let us. Now, verse 24 and 25 go together. Now, in, in our, in a lot of our, and, and it's okay. I mean, I don't really have a problem with it, but 
We like to separate verse 25 by itself, especially when you're an elder or a preacher or a leader in the church. You like to whip out verse 25. You know, attendance goes down. You like to whip out verse 25. Hey, you know, you're not supposed to forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the matter of some is. Well, yeah, that's true. But why is it true? Well, you got to go back to verse 24. They go together. He says, and let us, because of our position in Christ, because we can come to God directly, because we can have a pure and clean heart, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, comma, not forsaking our assembling together as is the habit of some, comma, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And like I said before, if you watch the news or read the news, you know the day is drawing near. But what are we supposed to do? How do we stimulate one another to love and good deeds? By assembling together. Not only like this, but assembling together in our grow groups or small groups or Sunday school classes, however we do it. And it's interesting when you talk about let us consider how to. Let us consider. That means give attention to. Give continuous attention. Care to. Watch over. In other words, you need to always be in the go mode. Stimulate or stir up. That's an interesting word. It can mean to concentrate on, to provoke, to irritate. The example I used in Sunday school was to poke people. I'm supposed to poke you into loving and doing good works. Now, I'll tell you this. There's been many times sitting in church where my wife poked me. Dwight, you listen to the message? That's for you. You know, I never poked her back. You know why? She's got sharper elbows than I do. Anyway, it means to prod or to push, to concentrate, to keep your mind concentrated on doing what? How to encourage one another to two things, love and good deeds, love and good works, love and good deeds. Love, agape love, sacrificial love, the love of the brethren, the love we have for one another through Jesus Christ, who I don't, we may not have anything in common, but I need to learn how to encourage you to love and to good deeds, good works, doing good things. And how do I do that? Well, I can't do it if I'm not with you. I mean, I can't do it. You know, some of the... It was put to me like this. Love is the root. Good works are the fruit. And the way I learned a lot of that was by serving with my fellow believers. When I started in the bus ministry, uh, actually before Barbara and I were married, me and another guy ran a Sunday school bus in the low-income section of Anchorage, Alaska, a scary place to be on Saturday afternoon. Um, and we'd pick up first through sixth graders and bring them to church. And then later on, when my wife and I were dating... And the other guy quit, and I had to drive the bus. I was like, hey, we're dating. You need to come over and help me. That's what, date, that's what you do when you date, right? So she came over off her Sunday school bus, which was twice the size of ours, and started helping me on the bus. So I would drive the bus, and she would teach the lessons and, and occupy the kids and all that kind of stuff. But working with those men and women and young people, because we had a lot of teenagers, in that ministry, because at Anchorage Baptist Temple, it was huge. I mean, we would rent our buses from the school system. We had 24 buses. I mean, we had hundreds and hundreds of kids, had a huge junior church, 
on Sunday morning in the gym with puppets and all that kind of stuff and Sunday school for the kids and all, you know, and we teach them on the bus. And I learned work, and we did that later when we moved to North Carolina when I was in the military. We did it for many, many, eight or nine years we did that. And you know what? Working with those men and women and those young people taught me so much about love and good works. You want to learn how to love people? you got to go be with people. You want to learn what good deeds... Because I had somebody ask me one time, Dwight, what's good works? Well, uh, well, feeding people would be... Well, yeah, but can you give me some more stuff that's not, you know, church stuff? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> well, help me my neighbor cut his, his or her grass. Maybe when I was in uh, Utah, snowball in their driveway. Um, there's so many things. But if you love people, you'll have good deeds. And let me tell you this. You've got to love the lost if you want to reach them. And it's going to cost. The reason a lot of churches today are out of the uh, evangelistic business is because I think sometimes it's that lack of love for people. If you want to reach the lost, it's going to cost. But it's the way we stimulate one another to good deeds by getting together, fellowshipping together, and learning from one another. Now, that doesn't mean that I am, I'm going to be the guy that teaches everybody everything. And it doesn't mean that I'm going to be, get the big head because my wife owns the pen. She can pop my big head anytime I get it. That's her job, among many other things. It's not me thinking I know everything, but it's me being able to say, I want to learn from you. You know, Barbara and I worked in the teen ministry for years. You know how much I learned from teenagers? You know how much I learned from the young adults over the last couple of years teaching them? You know how much I learned? But do you know the reason that I started that ministry is because I wanted to share with them some of the things I've learned and encourage them and hopefully help them not make the same mistakes I did? That's the way we should do with everybody. We need to learn how to poke and prod people into loving others and doing good deeds. And the way we do that is by not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. By remembering. Not like some people who don't get together. But by encouraging one another. Building one another up. Because the day is drawing near. We can talk a lot about the world and politics and things that are going on. But if you read Scripture and you are familiar with prophecy at all, you got to know there will be a one more government. There will be an Antichrist. There will be a tribulation period. But there will be the rule of Jesus Christ. There will be a thousand-year millennium. There will be eternity with Christ. That's the hope we hang on to. That's what should prod us to love and good deeds. Not only to love our fellow believers and want to make sure that they grow and are discipled and, and learn, but also to love the lost. To love the lost. And before I go to a little bit of application and I close, there's a warning in verse 26. I didn't read this for a purpose. Remember the Jewish mindset. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth and no longer remain a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. 
Verse 31, it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's what should motivate us. He's talking to the Jews. You can't go back. If you choose to ignore the salvation, the superiority of Messiah, the superiority of Christ, there's nothing left but destruction. You can't go back. And like I shared before, my wife's a big, she really loves to watch medical dramas. That's her thing. She was a nurse for 30 years, worked in the ER and all other kind of places. Boy, she used to come home and tell me some gross stories. Beside the point. But we'd watch these medical shows and they'd say, oh, I'm, I'm dying or I got a crippled body and I want to be free from this body or, or I, you know, I did this or that, the other thing, this tragic death. And I've, and I've shared this with Barb, but I thought to myself, how sad. Because if you don't know Christ as your Savior, that death is on the beginning. A beginning of a terrible judgment. Because you chose to ignore the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Because you chose to put that aside. And fall into the hands of the living God. That should motivate us to love and good deeds. To love the lost and share the truth. And then to go out and to do it. But let me say these few things as I close. Let us examine ourselves as a way of application. And say, I understand this brief little piece of teaching. How can I apply that to my life? How can I let us, let us, let us? Do I draw near to God through His Word, through fellowship with believers, through singing in the worship service? Do I draw near to God? I'm sitting here, draw nearer, and I'm thinking to my... You know the the verse in the song that goes, you know, uh, uh, it's like the rain, the freshness after the rain of the morning. And, And it's such a picture to me of God. And how fresh he feels every day. Am I doing that through his word, through fellowship with believers? You know, do, do I do that? Do I put myself out? Do I walk as Jesus walked? Do I obey his commandments? Do I take the time to read them and put them into action in my life? Do I stir others up? Do I let others stir me up to good love and good deeds? Let's get real with ourselves. Get real and be vulnerable with our brothers and sisters. When we gather together, we're not alone. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. You need each other. We need each other. Maybe I don't share my deepest, darkest secrets, but with a few trusted individuals. But that encouragement that they give me, and the encouragement that I can give you, is you're not alone. You that are on, online watching this maybe or going to watch it later when it's on the website. I don't ever watch myself. So it's embarrassing. Anyway, there's hope. There's hope. You're not alone. We're not alone as believers. We all struggle. Men, we struggle with a lot of the same things other men do. Ladies, you struggle with a lot of things other ladies struggle with. Married couples, you struggle with what other married couples struggle with. Singles, you struggle with what other struggle with. We're not alone, but the devil would have you believe you're the only one that's struggling with that problem. But you're not. Christ struggled with it, but He was perfect and didn't sin. Our fellow believers struggle with it who can help us through these things. Be in a grow group. 
Share your experience. Listen to others when they share. And the last thing is this. Mix it up. What do I mean by that? I'm just as guilty of this as anybody. When we have fellowship, I'm probably going to go sit with people I like or I know. Sometimes I'll go sit with the young adults. Sometimes I'll sit with the old adults. But the point is, I need to sit with, I need to mingle and get to know other people in my life. I have older men in my life. I have younger men in my life. There's older couples in Barb and I's life and younger couples in our lives. Don't just get yourself boxed into this one little group. Now, I'm not going to say that you're going to be madly in love with everybody you meet. All right? But what I am saying is there's something to be learned from everybody. Bill Barnado passed away. And his funeral's tomorrow here at Calvary. And Bill was a World War II vet. You don't know how much I learned from him. And I bet there's scores of people out there who knew him, who learned a lot from him. I sat and watched him. A B-17, he flew, I think, 25 combat missions over Germany and lived. As a navigator, I believe he was a navigator. Anyway, we had a, years ago we had a B-17 visit one of the local airports out here. And the Civil Air Patrol was out there. And I sat up inside the airplane in the cockpit with Bill and a young man. And Bill was telling us about his adventures. And if any of you ever went over to the museum over here off Airport Road, Bill would come in and he would brief you. He'd say, here's the mission we flew over this place, and here's what the plan was, but here's what really happened. But his face, surviving all of that, and still saying God's great, and his love for God, and the people of God. I learned so much from him. And I've learned so much from other men that have been in this church. Cal Romans, Herb Lanzer, all that have gone home to be with the Lord. But I've learned so much from young people in this church. And you can too, from every age group. So mix it up. But just remember, doctrine has a purpose. Teaching has a purpose. Its purpose is for us to put it into action and to do it. And if you've never come to know Christ as your Savior, if you've never had that time where you have come to know Messiah, where you can say, I have a heart sprinkled, I have a body cleansed, I have a soul that is now satisfied. It's there. He's there. Waiting for you. All you have to do is reach out. Romans says, if you call, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So it is with the heart man believes unto righteousness. You gotta believe. You gotta believe that he not only died, his death satisfied your sin, your sin debt, as scripture says, but that he rose again to put the seal on it. And to let us know that one day, we're gonna rise again. And we're gonna be like him and be with him in eternity. And there ain't nothing better than that. And if you don't know that, take the time today, maybe here at Calvary, maybe when you get home, or maybe with a friend. Take the time 
to talk to God and ask Him to forgive you and be your Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for the time we've had together. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your grace and mercy. We thank You for Your Son. We thank You for the salvation You provided. The perfect sacrifice. The perfect sacrifice. The one and only. Your Son. We thank You, Father, for that. And I pray, Lord, if there's anybody here who doesn't know You as Savior, that today they would take that time to reach out to You with their hearts and their mouths and confess their sin and ask You to forgive them and that they might start that journey of being closer to You every day. And I thank You for that privilege, Father. And I pray for the believers here, Lord, that know You as Savior. That we would come and understand our position and put that into application. We'd come boldly to You with our needs and desires. Lord, that we would hold on to that truth that one day You're going to be back to get us and we'll spend eternity to You. And to not forsake coming together with one another and encouraging one another and prodding one another to love and good deeds. Help us, Father, to put that into application this week. Help me, Father, to do that very thing. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.